0: What does Jesus expect of his disciples? There's a story told about a hog and a hen who shared the same space in a farmer's barn. And one day when they were in the barn, they they would listen to the farmer, what he was saying, and they overheard him talking about a church program, that there was a bunch of needy people in the world that needed food and how the church is going to be collecting food to feed the hungry people of the world. And after the farmer walked out of the barn, the hog and the hen turned to each other and said, that's amazing, we would like to help with that. And they said, I wonder what we could do. And so they were thinking about it throughout the day. And finally the hen spoke up, said, I have an idea. I said, I think that we should provide bacon and eggs for all the hungry people of the world. Well, the hog looked at the hen and said, well, that may sound good to you, he said, but from you, that is only making a contribution. But from me, that's calling for a serious commitment. And we discover with Jesus' message here in this chapter that Jesus calls not just for a little contribution, he calls His disciples, and when I use the term disciple, realize we are all called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. That's not for a select few. Sometimes we think of the 12 in the New Testament, that they're the only disciples, and it's true, they were the 12 that he chose there. But we discover, even in this passage, if you look back earlier, when he begins his message, he says that he calls his 12 aside, but then in verse 17 of this chapter, he says, he went down with them, stood on a level place, a large crowd of his disciples was there. So he goes beyond just the 12, what God calls his disciples, which is you and I, who are followers of Christ, to a new level of commitment, to a deeper level of commitment. And today, God wants us to understand what that commitment is. And I'm going to paint in broad strokes here in this message, um, because this passage comes to us at the end of what is called the Sermon on the Plain. If you've read Matthew's gospel, you know about the Sermon on the Mount. This one is sometimes referred to here in Luke chapter 6 as the Sermon on the Plain. You'll notice there's lots of similarities between the two. There are also differences if you read. And the message begins in verse 17. Jesus' message, the Sermon on the Plain. Some of his scholars, they think it's the same message and Luke and Matthew just highlighted different parts. Others think it was two entirely different messages. You can sort that out. I don't have a definitive answer on that. But what we know is that Jesus has a group of people that he's gathered together, and he wraps it up in the verses we read, verses 46 through 49. And he says, starting in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And let's just start there. The truth is, a lot of people call Jesus Lord. In other words, they give lip service to believing in Jesus. Even this morning across our nations, there will be thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands into the millions of people who will gather in church to worship Jesus, who would be people who would say, Lord, Lord, here in our area, there will be thousands of people in church this morning gathering to worship the Lord. In fact, I kind of joke, We, as I've told you before, we went to Mississippi to go to seminary, and that's what's in the area called the Bible Belt. But I personally, this is just my phrase, I think northern Indiana, some parts of Ohio and all, that it is the Bible Belt of the north. In fact, sometimes I think there's more people that go to church in northern Indiana than down in the Bible Belt of the south. Um, but... We live in the Bible Belt of the North. There are tons of missions organizations. There's tons of churches. There's Christian radio stations. There's how many Christian colleges of any state? Indiana's got gobs of them. And you think, boy, this is a heavily Christian area. There are lots of people who call Jesus Lord. And yet, he says in this passage, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, to understand where Jesus is wrapping it up, you have to understand where he starts his message. So if you look in your Bibles, going back to verse 17, you'll notice it It says when he begins the message, He went down with them, the them is the twelve apostles, he just called the twelve, and stood on a level place, That's why it's called the Sermon in other translations, the Sermon on the Plain, a a flat place, a plain. A large crowd of his disciples, so there's more than just the twelve. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And so, if you get a picture in your mind, there are probably thousands of people who have gathered to hear Jesus, and he begins to teach. The teaching is specifically directed towards his disciples. He's explaining in this message, what does it mean to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ? But what's interesting is you have a crowd gathering, they're coming to watch and to see Jesus and to hear him teach, and he wraps it up at the end, saying, now there's lots of people. And he's looking around, who will say, Lord, Lord, but they won't do what I say. They won't obey me. And so he's ending it really where it begins. He sees the crowd of people have come to see him and to hear him, and he wraps it up saying, and a lot of you will say, Lord, Lord, but you won't obey what I say. So what does that mean for us? Well, first of all, I think what it means for us as disciples of Jesus is this. Discipleship is more than coming to Jesus. In fact, you're going to notice in this passage, as Jesus wraps it up, beginning in verse 47, he'll use some verbs there. He'll say, I will show you what he is like, who comes to me, hears my words, and puts them into practice. So we're just quickly going to go over those three verbs. So discipleship is more than coming to Jesus. He says, I will show you what it is like who comes to me. Now, it's an important thing to come to Jesus. You can't leave out coming to Jesus. In fact, many of you could probably tell a certain day, a certain place, a certain time, maybe where you came to God and repented of your sins and asked Jesus to be your Savior and praise the Lord for that. But it is more than that. It's not less than that. You can't do away with it. But it is more than that, than just coming to God and crying out for his salvation. In fact, you could go back 200 years. There was a, a famous preacher named George Whitfield, probably considered during his lifetime um, the greatest preacher to be alive at that time. And there was another preacher during that time as well, a guy named John Wesley. Both of them coming from England. Both of them had some ministry here in America, um, but they were two phenomenal ministers of that time. It's interesting though to look at their ministries. George Whitfield was preacher extraordinaire. It was said that in the 1700s, his voice was so booming that over 2,000 people could hear him speak in the day prior to microphones and speakers. In fact, he was preaching once here in America, and Benjamin Franklin was so enthralled with George Whitefield's preaching that one time, as he saw the crowds gather to hear him speak outside, he started pacing it off just to see how far he could go and to hear this man's voice boom across the land. John Wesley, I don't know that he was known for that as much as being a, a famous speaker, but George Whitefield made an interesting comment about John Wesley once. As they reached the end of their ministries, George Whitefield looked back at all the preaching he had done and all the people who had come to know Jesus through a result of his preaching, and he said this, he said, My followers are but a rope of sand. He said, but John Wesley has tied his together, and it will never be undone. And you think, what are you talking about? George Whitfield was a great preacher. He'd stand up, he'd preach, people may come to know Jesus, and then he'd move on to the next place, and he would preach. John Wesley, however, he would take the people that would come and he would gather them in what he called bands and societies. And he had a way of structuring, he had a method to structure them together so that they then existed within small groups to continue studying the Bible together and learning together. So that today, you probably don't know anybody that is part of a George Whitfield society. You've never heard of a group like that. But I suspect that you still know the influence of John Wesley because you've probably heard of the Methodist. And they're called the Methodist because of John Wesley's method of connecting them into groups so that they would not just come, meet Jesus, and then walk away and pay no attention ever since. Because he had a method for that, and George Whitefield realized that. And we God's people today, we need to realize something. It's not just about coming to Jesus. Sometimes I hear people say, and, and I will meet with people sometimes who want to talk about their funeral service and all, and I'll ask them, well, I say, well, have you ever asked Jesus to be your Savior? And, and you can just kind of tell them the response. They have no intention with their life necessarily of following Jesus, but they'll look and say, yeah, I took care of that. 40 years ago, I got my fire insurance, and I'm all set. And it's just kind of this idea, we just come to Jesus. And the first thing we have to understand, that as disciples, discipleship is more than, not less than. There is a day where we come to Jesus, but it is more than just coming to Jesus. We also see in this list of verbs here, that discipleship is more than hearing Bible teaching. As you read down through verse 47, Jesus says, I will show you what he is like who comes to me and you notice the next phrase, and here's my words. Discipleship is more than hearing the words of Jesus. Now, it's pretty amazing. Have you ever thought about all the Christian resources that we have? I know Family Christian Stores went out, and so that's one less resource that we have in the area. But It is just astounding how much Bible input there can be. If you think about the first thousand years after Jesus, they didn't have a printing press. Nobody even owned a Bible. If we pause for a minute, I wonder how many Bibles could we come up with that are owned by just all of us gathered in this room? Do you think we could come up with a hundred Bibles in this room? I wonder, do you think we could come up with a thousand Bibles? in a room like this? I mean, think about that. We have so many Bibles. And not only that, if you don't have a Bible, then you just pull it up on your phone. You can get any translation, any language, you know, all multiple versions. Beyond that, we have Christian radio. Beyond that, we now have podcasts that you can listen to about Christian teaching. Beyond that, not only can you get Netflix, did you know that if you want, you can get Pureflix, the Christian version of movie entertainment. You can sign up for a monthly subscription for that. I mean, there's There is no limit, it seems, to the amount of Christian resources. But what's amazing is this, is that it is not enough just to study the Bible. In fact, you can think on this. I, I wrestle with this idea. Do you think it's possible for a Christian to study the Bible too much? You don't have to answer out loud. You can just follow that. And you say, what in the world? How could you study the Bible too much? Have you ever met a person who they know from one end of the Bible to the other? You got some trivia question, they're able to answer it. They, you know, you want to know about theology, they know all the terms. You want to bring up an argument, they'd love to delve into Calvinism and Arminianism and all the different issues there. But when you talk about the person, you think this. I would ne- you think, they know a ton about the Bible, but I would never want to live like them because they don't live like the Bible. And you think, sometimes we study the Bible, but we never go the next step. Because you'll notice here in this passage, discipleship, in fact, let me just pause for a second. You know what, sometimes I wonder if as churches we're guilty of that. That we have so many Bible studies in the church that we never do anything outside the church for the sake of the lost. And we fill our calendar, our church calendar, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm as guilty of it, probably more guilty than anybody. And we fill our calendar with stuff about studying the Bible, but we never go outside of the church to those who don't know the Bible. And keep time for that. I'm surely not against Bible study, and I think probably in our churches, Bible study is waning and disappearing, and we probably need more of it. So, don't take it like that. But at the same time, we have to realize discipleship doesn't end with knowledge because knowledge can just puff up. It can just give us a big head about what we know about the Bible. In fact, so discipleship has to be more than coming to Jesus, and discipleship has to be more than hearing Bible teaching, which we have plenty of in our society. We discover that Jesus says discipleship necessitates obedience. He goes on to the third verb in verse 47. I will show you what he is like who comes to me. You have to come. Who hears my words, you have to hear. Hearing is important. And puts them into practice. Discipleship necessitates obedience. And the implication seems to be by Jesus is that there are a lot of people who will come. There's fewer people that will hear. And there's a lot less people who will obey. And God's people, if we're really disciples of Jesus, we are called to obedience, to obey the radical teaching of Jesus. And if you read through this passage here in chapter 6, this Sermon on the Plain as it's been called through the years, you'll notice it has tough things like love your enemies. And you just think, well, Christians are called to love people, but what do you do about the people you don't like? the family members that you do not talk to, the person at work who took your position? What do you do about the neighbor that you wish would move to another place or give you the money to move to another place? You know, what do you do about people you don't like? And Jesus says, we're going to love your enemies. You're going to do good to them who persecute you. And you discover as you start reading through here that Jesus is calling people to live for the sake of God's kingdom, a radical life. And he says something. He says, when we, God's people, will obey Jesus' teachings, he says, then we will find that we have made a firm foundation for our lives. So he goes on to tell a little story about a house. And he says that a person who obeys Jesus' teachings is like a man in verse 48 building a house, who dug down deep, laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck the house. Struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Now, they say that in, the, that in Israel, in the Middle East, that it is hard-panned soil. I don't know what the technical name of that is. When, the only type of soil I ever heard about growing up, I didn't grow up on a farm, so soil wasn't my thing. Um, but when we moved to Mississippi to go to seminary, we heard about soil. They had down there what they called Yazoo clay. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but Yazoo clay it has kind of a reddish hue to it. In fact, if, as you drive just down the interstates, you can tell the soil, the interstate, is, the, the cement is mixed with. It takes on a different hue. It has a slightly different hue, the cement up here, than cement in the south just from the materials they've mixed it with. It's a little more reddish down there. But Yazoo clay has a tendency to shift. So we discovered, we actually bought a house while we lived in Mississippi, and we seminary students, and my wife worked at the hospital as a nurse. Uh, we bought a house, and as we started looking at houses, they said, now one thing you have to look for is foundation shift. I'm like, foundation shift, and lo and behold, you would see it in some houses, two blocks from where we bought a house. There was a house. The yazoo clay had shifted, and you could see a crack, a, a large crack run all the way up the brickwork to the top of the house where it reached the roof, and there was a four-inch difference from one shingle to the next where the house had split because of the shifting of the yazoo clay. In fact, when we sold our house, um, the front bedroom When we sold it to move to Ohio, the front bedroom had a crack through the ceiling, and the buyer almost backed out, afraid that the house was going to shift and that room would crack. And the people who inspect it, they're like, the house has been here 60 years. If that's what it's got, that's what it's got. I think you're good to go, and it's safe. But we had to hire somebody to come in and just put plaster over it and repatch it and repaint it so they couldn't see the crack because it made them too nervous. So I know about Yazoo Clay. I don't know about hardpan, what the commentaries talk about. But the idea is this, the ground is hard enough that if you wanted back then, you could just build a small home right on the hard ground. And that's all well and good until the water comes. And then Jesus emphasizes that the house comes down with a thud, and it collapses. Jesus says, people who obey me, their life is like that. Their life is either secure or it will one day collapse. And I think that's true in everyday life. And I think that's true in eternal life. The people who follow Jesus, that doesn't mean you don't have problems. It doesn't mean storms don't come along. In fact, you discover in Jesus' little story, the house faces a storm. It withstands the storm. But when I read that, it reminded me of the illustration. We've heard Pastor Jim tell it when he's preached. He tells a story about Billy Borden who the Borden family that owns the milk company at the dairy farms. And he talks about how Billy Borden grew up in a rich home, could go to Ivy League schools, and he gave it all up to go to the mission field in Africa. And I remember I wrote down on my notes that he said three things. He said, there'll be no reserve when I follow Jesus. He turned his back on the family fortune and business to do what Jesus asked him to do. When he got to Africa, he said, there will be no return. And then when he became sick in Africa and died shortly later, he had written in his Bible, no regret. And I think that last phrase is descriptive of those who live their life obeying Jesus. They can look back on their life and they can say, I followed Jesus. I have no regret. In other words, there's no what ifs. There's no, I wish I would have. If I could only do it over again, people who follow Jesus, wherever Jesus may take us and we find that life lands us, we may say at the end, there is no regret. That doesn't mean we don't have storms, but it means that we have stood on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And the same is true, I think, in eternity, because there are those who will stand before Jesus, as you read in other passages, who will say, but I, we prayed in your name and we did things in your name, Jesus And we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus will say to them, Away from me, I never knew you. And they will find that what they thought they had built will be brushed away by God Almighty on Judgment Day. So, discipleship necessitates obedience. So, the point is real simple. Disciples do. I know I should probably spell that out, but it's easier to remember two words than it is a whole sentence. Uh, that has multiple words. Disciples do what Jesus teaches. Disciples do. My wife and I, uh, we had a fun time last night. We got to get together. It, it, it came together in three days. I, uh, I had an appointment on Friday with a person. Um, the district has set me up with a pastoral coach, a person who uh, the pastors work with and just the uh, to guide and direct and to listen how God's working in and through the pastor and through the church. And so I have a pastoral coach, and he said, I'm going to be in town, and I'm doing a thing at Bethel College. He said, I'd love to, he said, we're just getting started. I'd love to see the church where, where you pastor. He said, I'd love to see the neighborhood that it's in. He said, I want to see the context that you're ministering in. I said, okay. He said, I'm going to be, I can come Friday. We'll get together, spend several hours together on Friday. So I said, we'll make that happen. A few days later, I get an email that says this, says, by the way, I'm bringing another person who I've had a, a long-time friendship with and a coaching relationship with. He's going to join me for the day. Is that okay? His name's Jeff Woolheater. And I'm like, I went to school with Jeff, to seminary with Jeff, down in Mississippi. And Jeff lives in Kendallville, Indiana, where he planted a church. And now he, he and his family have resigned that position. They're stepping out in faith to go plant a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so, uh, so Jeff came. So Jeff emails me and says, hey, I'm going to join you on Friday. I'm like, that's great. I haven't seen you in probably six years And we talk maybe once every couple of years, but it's been six years probably since we've seen him last, and he comes along and then he says, you know what? I was just talking to our professor down in Mississippi, Matt Friedemann, who was also our pastor at Dayspring Community Church, and I've told you stories about there, said you won't believe this, this weekend he is in Goshen at... The community church, I forget the name of it, and Goshen. He says he is there doing a presentation on parenting on Saturday. He's preaching in their services on Sunday. Said he's free Saturday night. We can all get together with other seminary students and eat dinner together. So the Lord worked it out. We had fun. We all went out to eat last night. I, we saw um, Matt Friedman was our pastor. Um, in some ways, he was our parents away from home. We spent Christmas at their house when we couldn't travel back to Michigan or Illinois. Uh, we watched their kids grow up um, as we worked in the youth group, and you know I had classes with them. I've just—they—they they were our family while we were there and away from home. And so, uh, so Matt was there, and a couple other seminary students were there, and their wives, and and we just had fun. Do you ever get together with people and just tell stories about things you remember, and then and then you catch up on what new things are happening and going on? And I turned to Matt and I said, Matt, so tell me, how are things at Dayspring? Dayspring's a little church plant that started in a roller skating rink that when you walked in, it smelled like dirty feet because of all the roller skates. The only church that ever had maybe a, uh, one of those, those uh, mirror balls that swirl, could swirl around because we were in a roller skating rink. And uh, eventually they moved into another building. And then after we moved away, they, they actually built an actual church building. And, and are in that. I said, how are things at Dayspring? And he looked at me and he said you know what, it's not what I expected. And I think I know what Matt expected. I could be wrong, I didn't ask him, I didn't say, well, what did you expect back? But I think he had this dream. He was an ev- he's professor of evangelism, he had this thought, I'm gonna plant a church, I'm gonna include seminary students in it for their training, and this church is gonna become a mega church. And it'll be huge. And just, it'll have hundreds, if not a thousand people in it. And, and that, he said, it's not what I expected. He said, but you wanna know what, he said, I would say this, he said, I was sitting in a group of bible people we were doing a bible study the other week he said it's the church i dreamed of he said i sat there and i looked around he said said as i looked around he said i had five ex-cons he said i had two pedophiles i had three people from the halfway house i had all the good old just traditional church saints who've grown up in church and and by god's grace have lived a, a godly life he said. And, of course, they were there, too. He said, I looked around, and I said, I have the church I dreamed of. I have a church that every Monday night is going into prisons and leading people to Jesus, and a church that when they get out of prison says, you can come, and we'll accept you just as you are. He said, I've got women in my church who go into gentlemen's clubs and take clothes to the women who are up on the platform just so that they know that there's people who really love them and care about them. He said, I got people going to the nursing home so that the elderly people aren't forgotten and they know that they're loved by God Almighty. He said, I got people who stand and do sidewalk counseling to people walking in to have an abortion. And we've talked moms into saving their babies. We've even had people in our church who the baby's been named after them. And he looked and he said, It's not the church I expected. He said, But it's the church I love because I got a church that does. And that's what Jesus says at the end of his message. He gets to the end of the message, and he says, there'll be a lot of people who say, Lord, Lord. And there'll be those who come. There'll be less who hear. But when you get down to those who do, he said, that's what needs to happen when you hear my words. You need to be God's people who do. Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher, tells a story. And uh, the way I learned the story is from Matt Friedemann. Matt Matt is a master storyteller in his preaching. And uh, one story he would tell often is that Soren, Soren Kierkegaard had a parable. And in this parable, you have to imagine something. You have to imagine that geese are people, okay? Just like in cartoons, you know how animals can come to life? Well, imagine that there's a world, and the world is filled with a world of geese. And these geese... Oh, they love to go to their church. They have the first goose church of Gosling Heaven. And they gather together, and, and they get together every Sunday morning, and they have church. And oh, how they love Saturday nights, they all go to bed early so they can get up early on Sunday morning, and they wash their feathers down. And Sunday when they get up, they fluff their feathers ready to go to their good goose church. And when they go to their goose church, they all get together, and they all, they all love to sing the good goose songs and then they love to pray good goose prayers and then the great goose gander gets up and he gives his great goose message and oh does he get preaching and do you know what he preaches about sunday after sunday he preaches about flying oh how marvelous how awesome What a wonder it must be to take off in flight and to fly through the air, to see the earth below, and to have that bird's eye view. And oh, how the geese get excited. Their hearts pump. You can hear them. They honk, amen. When the preacher gets roaring, some of them come down to the altars, and they kneel there, and they pray, oh, God, let us fly. And oh, they're excited. When the, when, the, when the service sermon's done, the goose band gets up and they all honk together and say, what a glorious thing it is to be a goose and to have the ability to fly. And then they all waddle home. Jesus is preaching to thousands. They all come and they gather there And he realizes, he sees them gather, they've come, they're hearing, and he wraps it up saying, there's people who will come, they will hear, but will they obey? Will they do what I have said? And may we, the people of Gospel Center, now you're ready to read the rest of the sermon. Now you know God wants you to do what Jesus is gonna say from verse 17 down to the end of the chapter in verse 49. This week, read that sermon. And say, God doesn't want me just to be a hearer. God wants me to be a kingdom doer. Because disciples do. And may we be God's people who have come, who come to hear. But then when we leave, we do all that Jesus asks. And we will never, here on earth or in heaven, then, Ever have anything to be ashamed of we can stand and we will hear god say well done good and faithful servant will you bow your heads with me father in heaven i pray that we your people here at gospel center may be a people who do your word lord that we love our enemies that we care about the poor Lord, that we forgive those who have wronged us, that we give to those who don't deserve to be given to, but God in his grace is given to us. Lord, may we be people who will live out the radical teaching of Jesus Christ because we don't want to just be those who come. We don't want to just be those who hear, God, make me, John Rainas, a doer of the word. That's your dream for your people, for your disciples. May you make it true here among us. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Will you stand as we sing our closing song?